you'll give me my echo chamber, please. Tonight, you will be subjected to the curse of the Green Scar. <laughs> To explain that little uh, problem there that we just outlined, uh, you are taking part in a vast electronic experiment, which we cannot tell you about yet at this time. Is there anybody out there who has a a uh, good dictionary? I would like before we before we really get involved here in this bee's nest, I uh, would like to take my text from that particular good dictionary. Is anybody out there got a good one and who can call us in? The definition of random, a, eh? and uh, while you're on the uh, while you're on that hook, I, I need this now. I'm not I'm not fooling around. I need it. Come on now. I need that definition of random because it's going to play an important role in tonight's plot. That is the clue for tonight. You know, speaking of uh, random, what famous ex-radio comedian does the word random remind you of? It was uh, the name, the word random. What does it remind you of? What 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 famous ex-radio comedian? Very good. All right, now uh, now while we're waiting for that to come in here, because it's highly important uh, for the situation we are about to take uh, take action on, we are we are going to uh, we're going to deal with something tonight that I don't often deal with. It's uh, in the form of a uh, personal. Uh, minutia file that I keep. Uh, somebody wrote to me and said, Shepard, I'm curious about your office. You have mentioned from time to time on the air that you have an office. Would you please describe your office? What is in your office? Well, I, I have a tremendous collection of office men, uh, memos. These little blue things that come down from unnamed people who threaten to fire me and who threatened immediate action if, who uh, threatened that unless thus and so ceases, this and so will occur. I've got a fantastic collection of those. But I have several other things. And one of the most important things that I have in my office, I keep behind me on the radiator. I keep it behind me in a place of honor so that every time I walk in the office, I can see it. See, It's right there in front of me. Now, most other people look at that and they say, why don't you throw it away? What is it? What's, what's it? What do you got it there? What, what is that thing there? I say, don't touch it. I keep it very carefully separated from all the other crud and the, the minutiae of existence because it reminds me of an extremely interesting period in my life. It also reminds me of a very important lesson that I once learned. Would you please bring my boredom music on, please? It's my boredom symbol. Yes. Every time I see that object, I can taste it. A kind of, a kind of taste like vaguely moldy, cold oatmeal. A sort of humming, a kind of tickling of the tongue. A feeling of vague itchiness. A kind of 
somnolence, and yet not really sleep restful, easy, soft, blue. Something, something more, something more dark, something deeper, diggingier. Yes, it reminds me every time I see that objet d'art on my, on my radiator back of my desk. It reminds me of the single most important motivating factor in 20th century man's life. Boredom. Boredom. And I take one look at it, and then I remember, and I know. And to myself, I silently say, there, but for the grace of who know what, goes you again, dead. is boredom. What does it make us do? Millions of people standing in line to see tenth-rate movies. Millions of people daily discussing tenth-rate plays. Millions of people poring over tenth-rate novels. Millions and millions of people just waiting for the ball season to begin, waiting for the football season to rise to a crescendo, watching, watching, Waiting for buses, planning, hoping, plotting, the boat, the golf clubs, all of it. A tremendous lifelong fight against boredom. Kids know more about it than grown-ups. Grown-ups have learned to kid themselves, to use a, an obvious alliteration. A kid will say, yeah, and the mother says, "Now why don't you go out and play? Go ahead, go out and do something." Yeah, well, there's nothing to do. Wow. And deep down inside mother's breast, she knows once again the clear brass bell of truth has rung out. Inescapable. And so she goes back to her Brillo pad, and so she goes down on her knees and begins to work on that linoleum again, over and over and over again. And the guy down at the office files stuff and calls people up, and the kid knows better. Well, there's nothing to do. Yeah, I don't want to play. Why? The sound of boredom. Isn't that great boredom music? You want to hear what random? Uh, now, if you'll please get me my my uh, my uh, give me my war music there. Just just hold it there in the bands there for a minute. Yes. How about this for a description? Now, the reason that I ask for for a uh, don't call in anymore. We've got we've got all we need now. We've got the definition of random here. And how about this for a description of life? Uh, I, 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 again, I have to repeat my thesis. I believe that most of the words that we use to describe life that authors do on their dust jackets, you know, vital, uh, motivating force of tremendous uh, flowing juices of existence, things like dull, boring, absurd, none of these describe life. They describe an incident. They describe a moment. 
or they may describe uh, a period but the words that really describe life are hardly ever used to describe it uh, in, in the formalized sense and I've always felt that maelstrom is a good one I thought that one wallow is another good one yes wallow I mean used in the noun sense have you ever read pig wallow you know what a pig wallow is it's a, there's a great description in the Oxford unabridged uh, uh, pig wallow uh, uh, words like uh, yeah these these and I'm not putting life down I'm saying these descriptive words this, now here can you imagine an, a, a better description of life to acceptable to a 20th century man not acceptable to maybe a 19th century fundamentalist or a 17th century rationalist this is a a, a description of life that would uh, would very well serve as the preface to an absurdist or an existentialist playwright's work uh, a man who's trying to talk about life in the 20th century how about this for a great description would you please give me my little war music on there we will give a uh, 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 an encyclopedic description of life ah, that's it life marching deep rich full thunderingly over the great rim of the cosmos searching always digging nuzzling rooting out down among the chestnuts of existence. Bring it up. Ah, ah. Random. Description. Haphazard. Casual. At random. Haphazardly. And here we get into pay dirt. Implies little or no guidance by a governing mind, eye, objective, or the like. Now, couple that word with another good word, chaos, C-H-A-O-S, which has fantastic root forms. It, 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 it goes back into root forms that, that cause the mind to buckle and open up incredible caves of dark secret yearnings, chaos. Chaos. The original word was spelled with a K. And then the evil maelstrom of Edgar Allan Poe. Come, follow. The story of Poe's sailor caught in the evil maelstrom. Do you recall the story? I will tell it to you briefly. In television guide, ease style. You know, like uh, I saw a description of war and peace in TV guide a couple of months back. It says, a love story that takes place in time of war. <laughs> Edgar Allan Poe knew something of what it was about. And he told the story of this lost maelstrom that over the centuries had been the bane of sailing men everywhere, that had swallowed up ships and cargo, men and monsters, since time began. And then one day, the hero, our sailor, found himself on a tiny barkentine being sucked 
inevitably into the maw of this fantastic devouring monster. Round and round it swirled until the mass sliced their way across the sky. This rope screaming with the great pressure of the winds and the howling gales. And And then down and down and down into the green water. And the crew was lost. And great, great blocks of cargo swirled into the depths. And the sailor with it. As he went deeper and deeper into the ocean, he fought and fought and struggled against it. Tried to get out of the terrible, fantastic wrench of the current. And then suddenly, he gave up. He just lay there. And he found himself for the first time floating upwards, upwards, upwards. He was the first one to discover the secret of the maelstrom. Go with it. Go with it. And then suddenly he was cast out on the turgid sea with the sun beating down on him. The only survivor of the great, the great shipwreck. Lost and gone to the depths forever. He had discovered the secret of the maelstrom. Wow. Sent to you as a public service of the Deep Thinking Division of this, your concerned radio station. see, this reminds me, uh, implies little or no guidance by a governing mind. Oh, that reminds me, this is a WOR, AM and FM, New York. <laughs> We're talking once again with the 2,500-year-old brewmaster, and naturally, the subject is beer. Uh, sir, the old days, before money was even invented, how did you pay for beer? With rocks. Rocks? Yes, we were on the Murray Standard. The Murray Standard? Yeah, Murray was our leader, and his picture was carved, see, on every rock. Uh, what did two Murrays equal? Two Murrays equal one Harvey. Uh-huh. Harvey was only carved on a boulder. And if you went to buy a six-pack of cold Valentine beer, you simply gave the man... Six Murrays. And if you wanted a case, you dragged along a Harvey. And if you wanted, say, a sip of beer? A Tilly. A Tilly was a pebble. With nothing. <laughs> That's certainly a fair trade, isn't it? The heavy rocks that you traded for the lightness of spirited Valentine beer. Yes, it was a real bargain. Today they want money for it. If you want to start living a life that's livelier, live it with spirit. Valentine beer, there's more spirit to it. Live it with spirit. Listen, how would you like to how would you like to pull a dirty trick, huh? I am getting sick and tired of this. Here is a note in yesterday's post, New York Post. And uh, it says here... Oh, wait, where is his name? Oh, it says here, Trivia... Uh, trivia was invented by Edwin Goodgold, Columbia, 65. He invented Trivia, or the game of recalling old radio shows and all that, last year at the University of Columbia. That's going to come as a fantastic surprise to a large number of listeners to this radio show, of which I would suspect Mr. Goodgold is one. 
<laughs> How would you like to do a dirty trick, really? Let's just once get back at some of these people. I'll tell you. Why don't all of you write to Nora Ephron? She's the one who wrote the piece in the Post. Nora Ephron, E-P-H-R-O-N, in care of the New York Post, and just tell her who invented the game of trivia. And ask her who the devil Mr. Corn... What's his name? Good Gold? I mean, you know... I'm just curious about that. You know, this uh, uh, Nora Ephron, New York Post, and you just tell her who invented the game. I won't even tell you who did it. Okay, gang? And by the way, in case you're interested in facts, it started started on the radio. I won't even tell you what show. Uh, It started on the radio in the year 1958 and has continued unabatedly ever since then. And we've always used the word trivia to describe it including the vast trivia file. So if this clutch says, well, I was the first to use the word trivia. No, no, fella, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Let's say you were the first to do it at Columbia. Well, that's better. Okay, now let's get on with Rover. Now, remember, that's Nora Ephron, New York Post. Let's just let her know if you can't, if you can't write or call her up or something. Now, uh, let's get back to uh, Rover here, speaking of trivia. We have with us the Rover Motor Corporation that composes the superb Rover 2000 automobile. And uh, I have been using one for the last couple of days. And once again, I'm convinced that that uh, this is the most habit-forming car on the road. This, this, uh, this could very well be, seriously, this could very well be the, uh, the first car that you mainline. As a matter of fact, it's a bad scene. I'll just tell you, you, you take this automobile out on the Connecticut Turnpike for a half an hour and then try to get back in that other thing you're driving. This is the Rover 2000, which is a true Gran Turismo. You know, a lot of people are using that phrase, but in the genuinely accepted European sense, the Gran Turismo is a car which is designed for fast highway travel at extremely safe uh, very, very safe concepts. It is not just a big, fast, high-powered car. Many people are using the phrase unnaturally these days. But if you've not seen the Rover 2000, you owe it to yourself to do so. If you're planning to buy a car for this spring, you should really look at this one. It's the Rover 2000, and it is the car that has often been compared with the Rolls-Royce, a great piece of British machinery. All right, now let's get back. Speaking of British machinery... Uh, you want to know? You want to know what that thing is that's back of my desk, that's sitting there. That I, I, you know, most of us have. It's funny thing about symbols, the the private symbolism of our lives. Uh, analysts, psychiatrists, writers constantly are worrying, working about these things and fooling around and playing with them. There are certain things which are considered universal symbols. Uh, Sexual, various sexual symbols, one thing or another. But the private symbol to me is far more fascinating. The, the, uh, the symbolism that one thing may have for one person, and it may even sometimes even be traumatic. It may be, may be very exciting. It may be, uh, depressing and mean absolutely nothing to somebody else. Totally nothing. For example, what there is something about, in fact, I just went through the dime store the other night. And I, I, I was walking along, and I, inexplicably, I'm walking through the dime store. And I love, I'm a great dime store fan. I love dime stores. I love that maroon, you know, they always have maroon woodwork for some reason or other. 
All dime stores have, it's that Woolworth maroon. You know that dark maroon woodwork? And they have kind of cream-colored walls. And there's a certain look to dime store girls, you know, chicks that work in dime stores. They, are, they, they, they look ravenously libidinous. They may not be pretty, they may be always ugly, but they're standing back there kind of adenoidal, and they're standing back at their cash register and the notions to pop in here. Hey, Yankee, and you got change for a tan? Oh, boy, you look at her, and you can see what they mean by the missionary's downfall. Uh, you, <laughs> you understand what the, I don't know what it is. It's a, maybe this is a, but I'm walking through the dime store, and uh, my mind was a million miles away, and I... 18 million. There's, there's another thing. If you notice in the dime stores these days, there's, there's a, a, a rash of pitchmen working dime stores. And so, all of a sudden, you'll, you'll hear over the PA system, you'll hear this guy, Ladies and gentlemen, your attention, please. When you please come to counter seven, please come to counter seven for your free ballpoint pen, which will be given away in just a moment. Your attention, please, in just a moment. A free ballpoint, a free ballpoint pen will be given to anyone who comes to count to seven. Your attention, please. Well, I am a sucker boy for that kind of jazz. And uh, the minute I hear that, I go drifting over, and sure enough, there's about seven people standing around with their mouths hanging open, little short, fat ladies with net shopping bags. And here is this guy standing back at the counter, up on a little box, and he's arranging his stuff. He's looking very official. You know. He's got a little loud, a loudspeaker in front of him, and he's arranging it all. He says, hello there. Glad to see all of you are here today. Isn't it cold out there today? Oh, boy, it's certainly a cold day. Yes, sir. Ah, we've sure had a big time today. Ah, the business has been fantastic today. All right, now, come on here a little closer, just a little bit closer. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, come over here, sir. Come, gentlemen. Uh, there, there. Let the little lady there behind you come up uh, forward so you can see. There. Can you see now, dear? There we go. All right, now, ladies and gentlemen, I have here a, paling, a peeling knife. You'll see this peeling knife. Now, the average peeling knife works like this. You take it with your thumb and what? Oh, oh, see that? It's how easy it is to cut yourself with the average peeling knife. Now, all of you ladies have cut yourself many times. Now, the no-cut peeling knife, which I'm about to show you, and which comes with seven grating attachments. It grates, it grinds, it chops, it masticates. It does it all, ladies and gentlemen, and for just 27 cents with another extra dollar for the handle. Oh, boy, I'm standing there, you know, and I'm waiting for my free ballpoint pen with my mouth hanging open. I love it, you know. Well, that takes about 20 minutes, and I watch that scene. And, I'm, you know, my mind is winging. I've, I've, I've watched a real craftsman at work. I'd like to see a, I like to see a real good man at his job. And he's knocked down the marks for about $45 in one, in one cut, they call it. And uh, he's putting his stuff away and packing up. He's getting ready to go into his next one. You know, I can see him back there with more ballpoint pens are coming out and the marks are drifting out the street. And, you know, it's a good thing, good scene. And, uh, you know, give it a little, take a little a pig's ear, a sow's purse or something. He just figures it's all here today, gone tomorrow. And I'm drifting along. And all of a sudden, inexplicably, without any warning, I am suddenly borderline depressed. Just, you know, instant, just a little instant. What's the matter with me? Just a little, not bug, but kind of depressed. And I walk a little bit, and I wonder, what the heck was that? And I got out on the street, and I'm beginning to feel a little bit better, but I wonder, you know, what, 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 what was bugging me there? What was it? It was like, you know, sometimes when you go swimming, and you're swimming through warm water, the water's warm, and suddenly you hit a cold spot, 
and you swim past it and it's warm again and there's no reason for it to be cold there you look around there's no springs nothing it's, it's just the water and you go back and it's cold well I, I figured this time I'm going to go back there so I turned around and I went back into the dime store and I walked past the nutty jewelry department you know dime store jewelry is a world of its own I walked past that nothing happens no bells ring and I walked I walked through the I walked through the candy department nothing happens there the same chick is working there selling the selling the popcorn her mouth hanging open looking libidinous and I walked past that I could see the guy back there setting up his collection of uh, no-cut knives again he's getting ready to go to work and all of a sudden without any warning going <laughs> The aha experience. I have walked into the vague depression zone again. What do you think that was? I looked around and for for a minute I couldn't figure out well, what the heck's what's with this? I'm in the cold water. Look around. It's the wax fruit department. The wax fruit department. I mean, there's wax oranges, wax bananas, there's a phony pineapple there, a couple of phony plums, there's a wax coconut. I'm in the wax fruit department. And I look at the wax fruit department, and there behind the wax fruit counter is a lady wearing rimless glasses. And her hair is in a, in a way that uh, nobody today ever would admit to be seen in and as a matter of fact hardly would ever anyone would even admit to ever even hearing about or knowing about it's a lady wearing her hair in what used to be called when I was a tiny kid among my grandmother and my aunts she was wearing her hair in a Marcel have you ever heard the term Marcel well this lady had Marcel hair she had on rimless glasses and she had and she smiled at me. You know, I kind of was pausing there. Not many people pause in the wax fruit department. And she smiled at me with the shiniest pair of Sears Roebuck pink gum store teeth you ever saw in your life. And she had these little pearl earrings. And she had a dress with a high neck with a lace bodice. She had a little watch pinned to it. Ooh. I knew. I immediately knew. Do you have my little song there with the bird, please? That's what I need. Holy smokes. Oh, I knew immediately what it was. I knew. It was Grandma Bell. It was, in particular, my Grandma Bell. I can remember it hit me instantly as I looked at that, that scene of that lady with the store teeth, with her gray marceled hair, tightly done up, real tight, she was all prepared for Sunday or something. And that, that kind of light blue stare through the rimless glasses and the pearl earrings, it was Grandma Bell. And I remembered my grandmother, my father's mother, who had wax fruit with a thin coating of dust over the banana, over the pear. And it was right in the middle of this round table in the, in the dining room. And the table had over it 
a, a lace tablecloth that had a particularly lace tablecloth, dusty Chicago Irish smell. They were what, what has come to be called shanty Irish. And they were true lace curtain Irish. They had lace curtains on their lace curtains. They had lace curtains on the table, on the floor. My father probably wore lace curtain pajamas when he was a kid. And right in the middle of the table was a bowl of wax fruit. And somehow it said it all about my grandmother's life. Wax fruit, store teeth, and lace curtains. Wow, you know? Now that's what they call a private symbol. Now anybody else walking through there, most people would not feel that same thing. But I had, it, it had all other kind of funny connotations, you know, you go, that was a grandmother I didn't like to visit. For one reason, she was much older than my other grandmother. And uh, she had an idea that the first thing you did when the kids came over was you got this bowl out. She had a, she had a, a glass jar with a glass top, and she kept this in her cupboard. And the first thing that would happen, instantly, as soon as we got in the house, uh, she would rush into the kitchen and she would say, And now, how about a nice cookie for Jeannie? And I would sort of stand there, and my mother would nudge me. Now, you be nice. Now, you be nice to Grandma. I'd say, yeah, Grandma. <laughs> and she'd hit my kid brother in the elbow. Now, come on, come on. Say this. Come on, Grandma. Yeah, Grandma. He always, you know, he's whimpering already. And she would bring this glass jar into us. We haven't even got our earmuffs off. We're standing in, in this, this apartment. Immediately, we're hit with the heat. She had an apartment that was not heated. It was overheated. It was like walking into an incubator. If you can imagine an old lady incubator. And you could smell over stuffed furniture. And, she, and speaking of furniture, that was another thing. She had the most depressing furniture. She had this kind of green furniture with mohair that sticks you in the behind when you sit on it. Especially if you're a little kid and you got BVDs on, you know, and it sticks you all over. And it had these big black arms with lions. With lions. And, and over your over your head... This this open mouth was yawning all the time, ah, with big wooden black teeth. And on the floor, it had claws. It was the kind of furniture with claws, and each claw was holding a big a big glass ball. Was that kind? Of, and, and so, uh, in the uh, in the jar, invariably in the jar, there was always the same thing: six rubber fig newtons. These fig newtons. I think my grandmother had these fig newtons ever since my father was a kid. She had an idea. Kids loved fig newtons. And she, they, they were rubber. And she had four other cookies. She had four other cookies. She had four balsa wood Nabisco cookies. These cookies were, you know how, how balsa, you know how these Nabisco, uh, these crisp Nabisco things are? They're supposed to be very, they are good when they're crisp, you know. But when they are very elderly, they get very limber and limp. And they get chewy. They get more rubbery than taffy. And they get more tasteless than uh, plaster. And so she had six or seven rubber fig newtons, and she would have four of these, these Nabisco things. And she would hold it out to us, and we would have to take one. My brother would chew on a Nabisco, and I would chew on a fig newton. And then she'd say, and now 
let's go in. Let's all go in and sit down around the table. Come on. She loved, She used to have, she, she had the illusion that the kids loved to come over and see her, you know, that kind of thing. And, and so we would all sit around the table and we would play myself, my mother. My mother was always drafted. Oh, boy, did she hate this. My mother, my grandmother, me and my kid brother to play an idiotic game called Old Maid. Is there anybody out there who's an old maid victim? Who has played with old ladies playing old maid? <laughs> well, I walk through the dime store and there all of a sudden I'm hit by this, this private symbol. The wax fruit. And you know, I had a brief, a brief urge to go up to this lady and say to her, how about a game of old maid, baby? Would you like to play just a little old maid, huh? I got the cards here. I'll bust them out. New set of bicycles. We'll play a little old maid. And, and I'll tell you what, baby, why don't you go down to the food department and ask them if they got any stale fig newtons. And we'll sit around and have a little party. And then, then came the day. It just had to happen. The wax fruit was there in that center of her table ever since I remembered first going there. And one night, my grandmother is in the kitchen. My grandfather is in the living room. My father is in the john. My brother's under the daybed crying. And I reached over and I picked up a wax plum. The first time I had ever even touched them and took a gigantic bite right out of the middle of it. Just, ah! <laughs> Are you aware that in wax fruit, they have uh, wax cotton? Did you know that there's cotton in the wax fruit? Cotton. Well, it's kind of like sawdust batting. And I took one big bite out of the wax plum, and then I stuck it back in the bowl and turned it upside down. Yeah, terrible. And I had an idea. See, I knew it was wax. But I had an idea. It was the kind of wax that you get, you know, with the teeth. The wax teeth. Or the little wax bottles that you can chew. This wax doesn't chew, Dad. It chews, believe me, it chews like old paint. Old crumbled paint off the side of ancient barns. Old crumbled mosaic out of the insides of ancient tombs. It just crumbled. It tasted dusty and purple and like mouse dung in you know, the whole world. It was kind of just there, hot and steamy. And you could smell the, the lace tablecloth. Somewhere out in the kitchen in the darkness, five rubber fig newtons lay in wait for the next five visits. You don't want to hear any more about these private symbols. Well, you want to know what the private symbol is behind my desk? Let me tell you. Get my board of music out there. We'll need that very fast. This is the symbol that reminds me how well off I am. It's the symbol that reminds me that, that no matter come what may, uh, at least uh, now in my present phase of existence, I am not suffering the true tortures of the damned true, genuine boredom. To me, uh, if, I, if I can ever conceive of a genuine hell, it is a hell not of flames. It's not a hell of porch, uh, pitchforks, you know, being stuck in a kidney. It's not a hell of molten rivers of lava. It's a hell of pure, undulating, soft, gooey, musty, dusty, 
boredom. Just boredom. With the mind laying at anchor in some forgotten port, some ancient Sargasso Sea of lost ships, with the barnacles growing up along the side, and the bottom rotting away, and the dank water lapping along that lost keel, dragging on the muddy bottom of this Sargasso Sea, the mine just laying there, with the rigging hanging slack, and the sails in tatters, just laying there, no place to go. And of course, this mine has a majestic figurehead, a great flying winged horse, Pegasus, with golden wings, and a magnificent ivory body, no place to go. It just lays there. I remember, I remember why that, why that thing, why that, why that particular seemingly innocent thing is the symbol of all my boredom. And you'd never guess what it is. A Coke bottle. A simple Coke bottle. A bottle which probably is the, is the most, probably the most common symbol of fun, whoopee, uh, you know, the boss that refreshes all over, everywhere you go, they say, let's have a Coke, you know, they hold it up. Well, the Coke bottle to me, it has nothing to do with Coca-Cola. It's the bottle. And I'll tell you why. I, one time, by the trick of the War Department, the, the Army Headquarters, was sent into the backwash, the genuine, a genuine backwash of the U.S. Army. Did you ever read the, uh, Mr. Roberts in the original form? The play was terrible compared to the book. Oh boy. Mr. Roberts was about boredom and how the ship would sail from the, from the island of monotony to Amwe by way of apathy. Well, it was about boredom. And it was, it was a beautifully done book. And it was not about the captain's palm tree. It was not about a lovable officer. It was about boredom. And I remember being assigned to this backwater company in the heart of a, of a, of a soft, motionless, heat-ridden jungle with, a, with the mosquitoes humming day and night and absolutely nothing happening. Nothing. And the, the routine that we went through was like swimming underwater. But it wasn't even water we were swimming in. It was like some lukewarm caro syrup. And we just floated on and on. And so we would, we would stay in our off-duty hours. And our duty hours were even more boring than our off-duty hours. We would stay in our off-duty hours. We would huddle in the day room. Eight or nine guys would sit there, and one guy would read over and over and over again the letter that had given him the mitten. Uh, another guy would sit there and endlessly, endlessly play on that old upright piano that the USO had given us. And somebody else would endlessly practice pool shots. And I would sit over there next to the Coke machine. We had this special Coke machine that heated the Cokes. And uh, not only did it heat the Cokes, but uh, it would occasionally just take nickels, 
at random. Just reach out and grab them out of your pocket and never give you a Coke back. Or once in a while it would throw eight of them at you. But mostly it was empty. It just sat there. And then we, we developed this game. Hour after hour, we would sit next, sit next to the Coke machine and put, in those days it was a nickel, believe it or not, the Coke. We would put nickels in the Coke machine. And for one reason, not to drink the warm Coke, but to see what city was on the bottom of the Coke bottle. And we had a weekly pool. And we would sit in there and collect our little bottles next to us. And I would hold mine close to me because I had a bottle, say, from San Jose, which was all the way across the country to Helen gone and back, hoping that nobody would draw a bottle from Mexico City, hoping that no one would get one from Kiska, Alaska. And week after week, our whole life was bound up with Coke bottles. And I'd get a nickel and I'd put it into the machine and I'd go... Down would come the Coke bottle. I'd grab it. Oh, Chicago. Oh, crap. It's a fourth Chicago on the row. Who wants a Coke? And I'd give my Coke away and then go another nickel. And then... Oh, boy. Well, now I'm getting somewhere. Denver. That's a little better. Hour after hour, day after day, week after week, year after year, eon after eon, we sat. And we would bet one against the other, Coke bottle after Coke bottle. And so the Coke bottle became the symbol of the ennui. It became the symbol of the apathy, the island of monotony that our tiny ship, Company K, sailed back and forth. It would touch at ennui a bit and it would unload toilet paper and then it would go backwards into the dark sea and move out again and then it would deliver a load of toothbrushes to apathy and then it would turn around and it would steam and snort and we'd throw the captain's palm tree overboard and then it would finally sail again to despair which was an atoll very close to the final the final cliff which we called the abyss and we just floated on and on with our Coke bottles. And I keep that Coke bottle behind my desk. And by the way, it's a true collector's item. On the bottom of it, it has bottled at the New York World's Fair, 1939. It has the Trilon and the Perisphere on it. Probably the only one of its kind still left. And a true, a true symbol of genuine defeat and decay decadence and the pause that refreshes. Uh.